All right. Hey guys, welcome back to the show. Thanks for tuning in. This is Morgan Zeggers and today we're going over Los Angeles, the mess that is over in California because I just went on a little road trip out to LA from Phoenix, Arizona. It was awesome and I had quite a few reflections that I wanted to share with you guys uh, because then I went back home and I did a lot of policy digging. I did some investigation into what's really going on in LA And I think it's a great case study for us to look at and talk about. Moral of the story is I went and I actually was quite devastated because, wow, it's it's really pretty over there. (laughs) I'm from upstate New York, and so I always felt connected to Californians just in the sense that upstate New York is so beautiful. The people really struggle about when do you determine it's time for me and my family to leave, especially younger generations. If your family's staying, do you choose to leave? Uh, I chose to leave because to me, the line has now been crossed between uh, what the government's role should be in my life and my family's life, especially children. You're seeing these dark blue, deep blue states infringing on parents' roles and families and individual constitutional rights. Now, for example, this just got struck down by the Supreme Court. That shows you how serious this was. But New York was doing things like trying to say you had to prove to the government in a an explanation for why you should be able to have a concealed carry permit to begin with. And I always used to joke, like, can I have my reason be that I'm five feet tall and a hundred something pounds and I don't want to die? Does that count as a good reason, government, for why I should be able to conceal carry a firearm as a law-abiding citizen? No. You can just take away my Second Amendment right like that. So things get too extreme. You see what they're doing with curriculum. You see them trying to make it as hard as possible to do anything but send your kid to school uh, in the public school system instead of school choice and educational freedom, parental freedom, and making that choice for their families. And then you also see things like the mandates, the vaccine mandates, the shutting down of businesses. These states were draconian. These states were tyrannical. And so I always looked at California because it was a very similar situation of just a beautiful state, and I've heard all about it, but I haven't really been there to spend time there before. And I actually got to drive a car out instead of flying to an airport like I usually do to LA, and then I get in an Uber and get to the event, and then I do the event, and then you leave and you fly back out. I got to drive in, and wow, wow. Um, So I want to talk about that. We'll talk about Freedom Fight Night because I just went to that before the L.A. trip. We'll talk about why I was in L.A., the rooftop Koreans. I went to Koreatown. And then uh, a little synopsis on what the heck actually happened in terms of policy and leadership in California that got it to be this way. So a little California-themed episode. I feel like a beach boy right now. All right, let's get into it. So before we get into the LA-themed content of the day, I wanted to give a shout-out to Harrison Rogers and Freedom Fight Night. He is a businessman, a community man, a man invested in the education of children, and not public school education, but he's actively making sure that children have solid opportunities outside of the government school system. And I give him so much credit for being such an involved person after and during his business successes. He does so much. And then on top of all of this, now he's starting to see as a businessman, a community man, 
a conservative, he's starting to see, wow, we really have um, some holes that need to be filled. And he's filling one of them by having these freedom fight nights. He is putting them on and bringing teams of people together to establish this. Last week, I went to number two, freedom fight night two in Mesa, Arizona. And it was awesome. It was MMA fighting with a hint of freedom values. It wasn't anything super political. It's not like there were speeches or anything. But the theme was kind of clear of, hey, this is for people that value freedom, athletes, community members, random people out there. Maybe you're not into politics. Maybe you're not into that stuff. But you have the same American values as us. We are having a night where there's not going to be any crazy left-wing woke politics. We're just going to have fun as people that enjoy this sport. We're going to watch these awesome athletes. We're going to support them, and we're all going to rally around basic American values. I give them a lot of credit for putting the resources, the money, the team, everything that it takes to really put this together. It was awesome. So great job, and thank you to Harrison Rogers. If you guys want to start going to these, this was the second one, but there's going to be more, and Trump went to the first one. These are really growing. It's at freedomfightnight.com, so if you go there, if you follow Freedom Fight Night on Instagram and any social media pages, you'll be able to watch it. To be honest, I've only seen MMA fighting on Instagram and on videos. I've never seen it in person, so this was my first time going, And even I was like, oh, this is quite fun. And so I really enjoyed it. The other thing is John Willis. They had it at the um, athletic complex that was created by John Willis and his business people. Now, I don't know anybody else. I just know John, but John was there. I got to hang out with him. I got to see Harrison. And it's just really cool to see us enter this more cultural aspect of our country. And I think it's going to be very, very successful. So again, please go to freedomfightnight.com because I'm not a big sports fight girl watching kind of thing, but even I really, really enjoyed it. And I would totally go again. I am planning to go to the next one as well. So I hope to see you there. This ended up being a late night. I thought it was only a few fights and then I I had to leave a little bit early because I had to drive to LA quite early in the morning. I was driving out to LA because for my nonprofit, The Freedom Records, we interview survivors from socialist and communist countries. One of the biggest countries, as an example, are the rooftop Koreans who experienced fighting against the communists who rose up to power in Korea in uh, the mid-1900s, and then a lot of them immigrated over to America, and what do you know, found themselves in the midst of race riots in the 1992 LA riots. So we told that story. We interviewed a rooftop Korean. It's coming out soon. But I just wanted so badly to get on the ground footage of the actual community where the rooftop Korean situation happened in 1992. So we went to LA and I'm going to tell you about it. So I love road trips. I love driving around the West. I mean, yes, gas was $6 when I was in Uh, when I was on the road trip because I was driving into California, so that was not exactly thrilling. Um, But it was totally worth it because when you Google rooftop Koreans, there's only a handful of uh, videos and pieces of footage that you can get from the original riots and the, the footage from on the ground then, and then just of people telling the story over the last couple of decades after it happened. There's really not a lot out there. And so I thought it was really important for us to get a camera and get on the ground in Koreatown. Now, if you guys don't know this, I'll give you a little breakdown of what happened. So very similar. This is eerily similar. And this is why we're telling the story. 
eerily similar to the 2020 Black Lives Matter race riots of the burning, the looting, the rioting. Uh, There was a man who got ripped from his vehicle on the street and was beaten by protesters. Remember, we saw a lot of similar behavior um, in 2020. This all happened in 1992. How much have we heard about that in the classroom, in the school system? How many people know that this happened just a handful of decades ago in America, the same kind of stuff? Now, even more interesting is is how serious the damage was. Because when you hear about the damage of these race riots just a couple of decades ago in 1992, so three decades ago around then, and then you see that the politicians of today were in office during that time and were very aware of how bad it really got and then continued to incentivize and encourage that behavior in 2020, things get even more suspicious. One of those examples is Maxine Waters. She's a congressman from California. She was in office during the 1992 LA race riots. And what do you know? She still was encouraging people to do it again in 2020. Now, Allie Bella, not Allie Bella, I call her Allie Bella because her Instagram is at Allie Bella, but her name's Allison Rogers. Allie Rogers works with us at the Freedom Records and helps us put on all the interviews, promote them, etc. She was in LA with me. She sent me these numbers. She said 60 people died in the riots in 1992. 10 were shot by police. 2,000 were injured. 12,000 were arrested. The total damage was $1 billion, including $500 million to Koreatown shops. 4,000 National Guard troops were deployed. Riots ended on May 4th, 1992. Rodney King pleaded for the riots and the shootings to stop. He said, quote, we'll have our day in court. And because this is all about a similar situation to George Floyd happened between police and uh, somebody who got in trouble back in 1992, back in L.A. And so it was kind of a repeat in 2020. Three months after he pleaded for all this to stop, the the four officers were acquitted in the King beating and they were indicted by a federal grand jury on civil rights violations. So the officers were acquitted in the beating of this man, but then they were indicted by a federal grand jury on civil rights violations. In 1993, two officers were convicted. Now, again... I'm going to read that for you. $500 million of damage to Korean shops. You might be like, how did half of the damage happen in Koreatown alone? Um, Well, what happened is that according to Tony, the officers were so overwhelmed. It's not that they necessarily looked at Koreatown and said, we don't want to support them or help them out because of their race or because it's just Koreatown or whatever. Even Tony Moon, who is the rooftop Korean that we interviewed, he says, I'm not going to blame police for not coming. They were wildly overwhelmed. The entire city was being rioted. There were lootings and fires and, and there was violence throughout L.A. But Koreatown specifically was seeing a huge amount of gang violence where you had Hispanic and black gang members rioting, looting, and hurting people in Koreatown. So quick breakdown of that. If you guys haven't heard this, it's, it's crazy that people don't know this. A gun shop in Koreatown opened 
and started giving firearms to any Korean men that walked in and needed them. And so all the Korean men in the town came together and decided to get on the rooftops and patrol their own community as it was being rioted and looted because there weren't law enforcement officers that were doing that. And so people were getting hurt, businesses were being burned, and they decided to step up and and take care of their community on their own. That became infamous. They became known as rooftop Koreans. There's a ton of really cool pictures of them on buildings. So when I went to Koreatown this weekend with Tony Moon, who was there, and he was 19 at the time, he took me to the buildings where all those infamous pictures were taken, and he really explained what his patrol route was with his friend. Now, what I find so interesting and what connects this all, especially for the Freedom Records, is that when the men who took up arms in Koreatown during the 1992 riots did so, a lot of them actually had military experience because they were from Korea originally. And it was required, it was a very nationalist, militaristic state that was fighting the communists. And so it was required for men at the time, and I think it still is actually, to join the military and serve for a certain amount of years. And they were at war with the communists. Later on, they then immigrated to America. So they had the skills, they had the experience, and then they stepped up once law enforcement wasn't able to. So if you've heard the term rooftop Korean, it might actually be because after 2020 or during 2020 with the riots, memes starting popping up all over the internet saying, bring back the rooftop Koreans. And then you had the situation of Kyle Rittenhouse and people then started bringing up rooftop Koreans again in the sense of, wait, imagine, <laughs> imagine back then what was happening in Koreatown where people were just handing out firearms and people were shooting at each other. I mean, guys, it was like the wild west. And then look at what happened with Kyle Rittenhouse. The difference in our country from then to now is just staggering. That story of of the history of fighting communism in Korea and then the immigration to America, the race riots that were in many ways similar in the sense of cultural Marxism, dividing by race, pitting people against each other, using a hostile moment between civilians and a police officer of different races, all of that happened in the 1990s and then it's happening again. And so our understanding of what happened last 100 years ago versus what happened a couple of decades ago versus what happened two years ago, everything is so connected. And for some reason, because uh, I'm not for some reason, I know why it's not properly taught in the school system. We have no idea of this. So we are not self-aware of just how repetitive these patterns can really be and how linked it all is. So I have a massive passion for doing this. Driving through Koreatown was fascinating. I'm really thankful for it. I hope that you guys stay tuned for the Freedom Records episode with Tony Moon. If you want to watch any of the other countries, any other videos that we've done, it's at thefreedomrecords.com. But what I encourage you guys to do most is look up the 1992 LA riots. And what I and not only do I find the history connections fascinating, but I also find it really interesting when I was talking to Tony of like, what was it like as a young man to go home and you and your father, he talks about this scene where he goes home and he gets his shotgun and his, he sees his father 
pulling out his gun that he's only seen his father pull out a handful of times in his life. And I, him describing that moment, him explaining what it was like to patrol, him talking about uh, not the feeling of abandonment because he didn't even have that victim mentality of, oh, well, the police didn't come and they didn't save us and all this stuff. No, he just said we were just doing our jobs. I mean, the, the young men, the older men, he said that it was often the younger men at the time, and this was a period of a few days where these riots just continued on and, and people were being seriously hurt and their, their whole livelihoods were being burned to the ground. He talks about how uh, the older men were maybe on the roofs, the younger men were sent out on patrols. And hearing the details of that, you certainly don't see that kind of masculinity around these days. You certainly don't see society encouraging men to take on those roles of leadership in their families, in their societies, generationally, in their communities. And instead, we like to point fingers, we like to complain. And not only that, when you do see people stepping up, you see the government and politicians incentivizing the attack of those people. You see them shouting down and vilifying people like Kyle Rittenhouse. And what I f fascinating best part of this was him talking about Kyle. I asked him, you know, as you're in 2020, you're seeing the rise of these rooftop Korean posts and you're, you're seeing this, this phase of communication, bringing back the talk of the 1992 riots. Cause nobody really talked about rooftop Koreans after that. It's not like it became this infamous thing. It really only started to pick up most recently with 2020 and black lives matter. But he talks about with Kyle, he was like, you know, I kind of had a sketchy past. A lot of the guys like we're in downtown L.A., you know, and so we had been involved in some things when we were young. But if you look at Kyle, he was this sweet, innocent kid. There's all these videos of him taking the graffiti down and he's cleaning. He's got his med kit that he's bringing around trying to help people. You look at an innocent young man like that and then you see what they did to him in the media. Jeez. <laughs> how times have changed. Um, but I thought that was a really unique perspective of that, of of Tony Moon even being like, hey, he's way better than I was back then. And, and look at the kind of attention he ended up getting, the situation that he ended up in. Um, so I'll stop there because I could talk about rooftop cranes for quite some time. Onion Haseo, hello. <laughs> That's what hello is in Korean. Um, very cultural, can't you see? Uh, let's move on and we'll talk about LA. So I guess the good way to start this would be explaining what country bumpkin morgan's journey was into the city <laughs> i was first of all uh shocked by how beautiful it was i should warn you guys everywhere i go i'm scouting my homestead i am actively looking for that place okay for a long time because i'm from upstate new york because i love winter i figured i would end up back in the mountains and i love watching ballerina farm i plan on creating a ballerina farm inspired atmosphere for my future family. I just love it so much. If you don't follow them, then you clearly hate me. <laughs> uh, it's at ballerina farm on Instagram and ballerinafarm.com, I believe is their website where they sell everything. But if you know what I'm talking about, then, then it makes a lot of sense. And so ballerina farms up in Utah. And when I went to that region, I went to Camas and drove by in that town when I was up there for a thing with my dad it was one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen in my whole life. And it was so overwhelming of how wonderful it was. And I thought, this is exactly what I want. And then over the last year, I have seen a startling number of statistics that really have been incentivizing me to no longer want to go 
up north to a cold region. The most troubling number was that 7% of our lives on average are spent outside. When I saw that, I just said, I can't do that. I can't do that, especially with young kids. Seeing that 7% statistic, I mean, that was shocking to me because I didn't realize how serious that was. And when I think of the environment that I want to create for my family one day, I want to homeschool. I've been about that for years now. I want to homeschool. And I want to not only have that, but I want the entire journey of childhood and for my family at all stages to be one that is one with nature, that is full of sunshine, that includes a lot of growth outdoors, a lot of um, being in touch with the food that we are growing and spending so much time out in nature. And I have all these little visions and it really took that statistic seeing that on paper for me to be like, wow. So if I, if I went to the place that I've kind of envisioned for quite some time and, and if I did a ballerina farm kind of thing where it's in the mountains and it, it's rugged and it, it's all this stuff, I would really be holed up with the kids, with the family for quite some time as we go through those cold seasons. And I'm just not, I'm not feeling it anymore. I just, of course I would love that, and it's so beautiful, and it looks so perfect for a majority of the year, and it's even beautiful when it's snowing, but I don't necessarily know if I want to spend more than half of the year with such cold weather that really forces us inside or makes it very difficult to enjoy being outdoors. So that encouraged me to shift the focus to being more willing to looking at Southeast or Texas in that area. So I have an open mind about it now, and now I'm reconsidering. Now, that being said, as I'm driving into California, right, in my head the last year, I've been like, wow, I'm going to have to sacrifice the mountains. Um, I'm going to have to quickly become rich or something with some random way, and then I can have a little home in the mountains, and I'll just go visit. I was trying to, you know, justify to myself, if it's fine, I'll, I'll go to the mountains sometimes. I'll be, I'll have some cold weather. It'll be fine, Morgan. Uh, you'll figure it out. And so I'm driving into California and I go, whoa, it is a nice, breezy 80 degrees in July in California. The weather is mild from what I've heard all winter as well. And there's these beautiful mountains and there's green everywhere and it's lush and there's trees and there's plants and farms all as I'm driving in. And I'm going, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> I thought that this kind of place didn't exist. I thought I was going to be, you know, picking some rolling hills in Tennessee and just telling myself that that counts as mountains because it is. It's beautiful. It's probably where I'm going to end up if we're being honest. But I'm driving in and I'm like, maybe I should move to California. <laughs> this would be a perfect place for my homestead. And as this is all happening, I'm like, wow, this makes so much more sense for me of why it's so hard for people to leave why it's so hard for people in California. Because you guys, I've got to say, California is worth saving. LA is worth saving. I mean, that was so cool. I'm not a city person, but when I was driving in, I said, wow, this the architecture is so beautiful. There are all these beautiful plants and trees and, and beautiful flowers everywhere. And it's a city surrounded by mountains, surrounded and even placed within the mountains. It was just so cool to see. And I really was unaware of how nice it was. Now, that being said, 
the entire cost of living, affordability, quality of life, basic safety, every other aspect of living in California right now sucks other than, man, it looks beautiful and it's super cool and it's perfect for a homestead. I was really, really enjoying driving in, especially before you got to the actual city part. Now, the two things that I noticed about first driving in, and then we'll get into an article that has some interesting numbers for us and a breakdown of what really happened there. Um, yeah, if you've read Great Gatsby, then there's this there's this moment in the book where there's a lesson, this this symbol of kind of the class struggle, the difference between the poor area, the rich area. And it, it also stood for a few other things. I can't remember right now though. But it stuck out in my head because it's it's this visual on, I think the side of a building or it was a billboard or something in the book of these two eyes that are staring at you as you're driving by them. And it's as you're driving through the poor area into the big wealthy city area. And and what happened as I'm driving into LA, maybe if you guys are from the area, you know what I'm talking about. As I'm driving in, I just see this billboard of Kim Kardashian and she's kind of like laying and then gets closer to you and she's staring at you. And there's no words on it. It's just her in this tiny nude colored leotard. And I think it's for Skims, which is her um, shapewear. But it didn't say anything about skims. It didn't say anything about shapewear. It didn't say anything about advertising. It's just her on this like plain yellow board and, and she's in a nude, similar colored onesie. And I was like, well, that's a little weird. But I guess if people know that it's skims, then they would be able to look it up themselves. But other than that, what's the incentive behind this apparent billboard ad? So then I drive a little bit longer. And I kid you not, there's another one on the other side of the road. But it's Billie Eilish, a singer. And she's just, it's a close-up of her face and she's staring at you and her eyes are huge. And again, there's no words. And I was like, well, that can't be a Skims ad because it's just her face. Is this how they advertise LA of like, hey, everything else here sucks, but it's really pretty and we still have famous people that live here. Enjoy, you know what I mean? It reminded me of Great Gatsby because they had these big billboards of just celebrities' eyes staring at you with no words and there's gotta be what's the reasoning does anybody know please message me if you know that reason the next thing is country bumpkin morgan driving into la for the first time i'm still on the outskirts of the city it seems kind of rural in the sense that there's some houses along the way there's now more of like fences along the highway so i felt like we were getting more and more closer to downtown or something like that and there's still mountains and so we drive up I don't know why I said we, it was just me on my lonesome. I'm driving up and then all of a sudden I see these these uh, tents by a field along the highway and they just go on for forever. And so I'm driving along it and I can't see much. There's the, the fence in the way. And you guys, I kid you not, the first thought that comes to my mind is, oh, you know, this might be one of those hippie festivals that they tell you is out here. And then it took me just driving like, 30 more seconds to realize, oh, this is one of the tent cities that they talk about. This is not Coachella. Because I, I, when I said that I was driving, someone was like, oh, you're going to drive by where they have Coachella. And I was like, sure, I guess I'll keep an eye out. Um, it was not a hippie festival. It was a massive tent city just lined up along the side of the road and then into the field. And it just stretched on and on and on. And wow, that is depressing to look at. 
So needless to say, then I got to see the team, including Allie, who lives in L.A., and Allie has been active in a recall effort because, you guys, not only are the policies uh, in general in the state terrible, and we're going to talk about them, but there's also a very concerning issue happening right now because of the district attorney. We're going to talk about that next. So before we get into the district attorney problems and specifically what Allie's a part of in L.A. with the recall of the district attorney, I found a really interesting article from 2017, uh, a little bit after President Trump won in 2016 and was put into office. And it's about California. It's from Forbes, and it's called California, the Physical Collapse of a Social State. Again, it was in 2017. It says, welcome to California. It is a state of a perfect set of laws, at least in the minds of those wedded to the legislative pursuit of social justice. Under the one-party Democrat rules, spending on fairness tops $100 billion every year. So only the Democrats are in charge in the, the state, and they spend over $100 billion every year. Meanwhile, the basic infrastructure of the state, so necessary for the economy long and short term, is collapsing. The infrastructure of the state, physically collapsing. California Democrat after Democrat has decried President Trump. The day after the election, a, quote, joint statement from California legislative leaders on the result of presidential election, issued in part by California Senate President Pro Temp, Kevin DeLeon, he stated, while President Trump may have won the presidency, he hasn't changed our values. America is greater than any one man or party. We will not be dragged into the past. We will lead the resistance to any effort that would shred our social fabric or our constitution. The legislature of California hired former Obama Attorney General Eric Holder as legal counsel for their fights with the federal government. Their new state attorney general, Xavier Becerra, was appointed to, quote, protect California's economy and our sensible policies on climate change, health care, civil rights and immigration priorities. So said Governor Brown, who, yeah, Governor Brown at the time, who made the appointment. It says California, of course, is the front line for sanctuary cities. Cities like Los Angeles, San Francisco and Sacramento prohibit law enforcement from cooperating with immigration authorities. They are all willing to risk millions of dollars in federal funds for their current residents, essentially to provide social justice to those here now illegally and in the future. So they are saying, no thanks, we don't need federal funds. We would rather still remain as sanctuary cities. Finally, we cannot forget that California has the most stringent and expensive regulations in the world as part of its effort to fight climate change. Estimates run to over a billion dollars spent in California each year to change the world's climate, or at least to prevent it from changing anymore. Now Mr. DeLeon wants to prevent the use of any fossil fuels in the state by 2045. So the guy in 2017 basically said within 30 years, the leader of the Senate... He said we want to stop all use of fossil fuels. Now gas in California is at $6. It is said that California has over $77 billion in deferred road, highway, and bridge maintenance costs. Of course, there is a whole issue of the lack of water infrastructure in California. 
The article says there's not enough of it to store and supply the water needed for the industries and its residents. Indeed, the system of California, the water system, was designed for only half of the current population of California. The current water system in California, designed for only half of that current population. It says the EPA in 2014 told California that it needs $44 billion to fix the infrastructure that it currently has. Now, if you want some interesting corruption examples, Governor Jerry Brown at the time said that he wanted to spend $70 billion to build a high-speed rail that really no one outside of a construction union or Senator Dianne Feinstein's husband would really want. Turns out Dianne Feinstein, the senator of California, her husband won, his company, won a $1 billion contract to build a high-speed rail in California. I love when that works out for couples like that. It's so romantic. So it goes on and it continues to talk about how they literally have a crumbling water infrastructure system that can only sustain for half of the population currently in California. It just goes on and on about how they're focused on things like high-speed rails uh, when they're billions of dollars away from just being able to handle water infrastructure. Then it talks about poverty and it says, so what is an impoverished California to do? It's not an academic question. California leads the nation in poverty when cost of living is factored into the equation. Then the article closes and says, perhaps one day the Democrats will understand that there is no social justice without a job, but don't count on that anytime soon. So I was talking to Allie about it, um, of what the heck happened to the city, because it, it was an absolute mess when I was driving in. Yes, it was beautiful. Yes, I'm looking at garden zones. I'm looking at mountain ranges. I'm looking at the valley because I want my homestead house to be at the base of a mountain and then overlooking the valley prairie. Okay, I have dreams. But in reality, it's like one of the most dangerous, expensive, and impractical places I could possibly choose that's what's actually happening. I said, Allie, what is going on? And she was telling me that with all of the policies, some of the highest taxes in terms of state and local tax burden in the country, highest business taxes, one of the highest costs of living, one of the most dangerous areas to live in. She said it's only been worse in the last handful of years because similar to other areas in the country, blue states and blue cities within red states, you have billionaire donors funding the races of pro-crime district attorneys. And that's what happened in LA. So what's happening now is the incentivizing of crime and dangerous behavior. And I can make an entire episode about this, and maybe I will, about the George Soros funding of district attorneys and the incentive that is being provided to criminals. When these criminals are then incentivized to act like this, it creates massive chaos in society and society starts to crumble because the fabric of that society, that unwritten agreement that we all sign as, as citizens, as taxpayers to continue to be well law-abiding citizens in exchange for getting basic protection and basic services from the government, that promise that agreement really starts to crumble we saw that most recently with a story in new york city you guys of the poor bodega worker who got assaulted and attacked and was just protecting himself carrying out self-defense and stabbed a guy who was attacking him and then ended up in rikers island for murder because he protected himself as he was getting attacked working a late night shift at a bodega Left-wing politicians put him 
in Rikers Island, when they say that Rikers Island's so full, Rikers Island is against human rights, all these things. Well, if you carry out self-defense in a blue city like that with woke politicians and woke leaders put in charge, you're going to Rikers, apparently. That's the kind of stuff that they're doing. And so they're, they're teaching law-abiding citizens to be scared to defend themselves, and they are empowering criminals. That's what we're seeing in L.A., and that's what I want to close off on, on this wonderful, passionate, homestead, rooftop Korean, and L.A.-themed episode. <laughs> what a thrill. Um, all right. Now, I love Heritage Foundation. I like when they provide basic breakdowns because a lot of people don't do that. This kind of stuff is really hard to find sometimes, but Heritage makes it easy. I'm looking at this, and it says, uh, I'm looking at this. Oh, it's recent. This is from July 13th. I'm recording this. This episode's going out July 17th, Sunday. So this is just from a few days ago. It's titled, Gas on Recall Effort Takes Big Step Forward in Los Angeles by the Heritage Foundation, Zach Smith. Um, commentary by Charles Cully Stimson. There's a lightning storm happening outside. It's a little scary. It says, key takeaways, the move to recall Gasson comes in response to his rogue and radical policies, which have wreaked havoc on Los Angeles County. Even Gasson's own prosecutors don't believe his policies, believe in his policies. All cities need a district attorney who pledges to restore accountability and consequences to their criminal justice system. This commentary is a part of a series on the rogue prosecutors across the country who have been backed by liberal billionaires such as George Soros and Carrie Tuna, and the threat those prosecutors pose to crime victims and others alike. Previous entries in the series have focused on the rogue prosecutor movement, focusing on prosecutors in Baltimore, Philadelphia, Chicago, Boston, St. Louis, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Fairfax, Virginia, New York City, and U.S. attorneys. Wow. You know, just every major area of the country, no biggie. On Thursday, the Recall Gasson team delivered 715,000 signatures from Los Angeles citizens to the Los Angeles County Registrar Recorder, far exceeding the 566,000 signatures needed to put Gasson on the ballot this fall for a recall election. So that's what Allie's been a part of. I'm so proud of her. They did such a good job, and they're doing such a good job. It says on Saturday, Dean Logan, the controversial registrar recorder, issued a press release confirming that their raw count of signatures submitted was 715,000 and 833. Logan's office has until August 17th to conduct a complete review and verification of the signatures in order to certify the recall. If those signatures are officially verified and over the threshold amount, Gasson could be on the ballot for recall as early as November. If more than 50% of voters vote to recall Gasson, he will be removed from office and a successor will be elected. Now this is what happens when the people actually start to stand up. Gasson isn't the only rogue prosecutor to face a recall this year. In June, San Francisco voters removed DA Chesa Bowden, Budin, by a 55% to 45% margin. He refused to prosecute drug and most property crimes, and he turned a blind eye to open-air drug markets, all of which contributed to a dystopian cityscape in San Francisco. The effort to recall him was organized and funded in large part by liberals, so San Francisco liberals removed him, although they voted for him in the first place, and they eventually realized that his rogue approach to prosecution was pushing businesses to close, exacerbating the drug, homelessness, and crime problems, and emboldening criminals. 
As with him, the move to recall Gasson comes in response to his rogue and radical policies, which have wreaked havoc on Los Angeles County. This is fascinating. His policy directives issued on his first day to his 1,000 deputy district attorneys in the county included prohibiting his prosecutors from asking for bail in most cases, refusing to prosecute most misdemeanors, prohibiting his prosecutors from filing sentencing enhancements and prior allegations for new crimes, refusing to prosecute violent criminals under the age of 18 in adult court, refusing to allow prosecutors to seek the death penalty, no matter the crime, resentencing between 20,000 and 30,000 convicted felons who had served at least 15 years of a life sentence or what he deemed a too long sentence. <laughs> Imagine just saying 20,000 to 30,000 people need to be reevaluated and potentially released a lot sooner. That does something to a community. And then reversing convictions of violent felons if he suspected that race played a part in the conviction, even when the conviction survived an appeal. The article says the results of Gasson's policies have been predictable. Crime exploded, victims have been ignored, and minorities have borne the brunt of the violence. As of May, these numbers are crazy. As of May, crime has exploded in Los Angeles compared with when he was first elected in 2020. Homicides up 33.9%, robbery up 17%, aggravated assaults up 18%, burglary up 6%, grand theft auto up 34%, gun violence up 65% in LA. <laughs> Massive gun laws there though. And arrests, get this, because of Gasson's policies are down 20%. Did you hear me? So when I talked to Allie, she was talking about how the the police, the law enforcement is so overwhelmed there that they have actually publicly announced before that they will not be pursuing low-level crimes because they've just got to focus on the big ones. And so it's incentivizing people to just get away with these minor misdemeanors that actually do, no matter what, even if they are kind of low-level, they do wreak havoc on society when it's massively increased in terms of quantity. It's so crazy. So it says, when criminals know they won't face the full force of law, crime runs rampant. Then it says that not only are just regular citizens mad, but it's also high-profile figures that have been openly criticizing his record. So that's not something you see, especially between the left. The Dems are really good at kind of protecting each other and having each other's back when things go bad. But we're seeing high-level people in his own office even speak out about him. So, I mean, that's got to say a lot when people are publicly talking about the boss. It says, after Bowdoin was recalled in San Francisco, Los Angeles County Sheriff Alex Villanueva called Gasson a, quote, failed district attorney. So the, the county sheriff called the district attorney a failed district attorney and also criticized him in a discussion at our Los Angeles Symposium. Even Gasson's own prosecutors don't believe in his policies. The Association of Deputy District Attorneys, the union representing the 1,000 attorneys who work for Gasson, has filed two lawsuits against him. Eric Sadal, a deputy DA and vice president of that association, said that his programs, quote, make sure that the most violent offenders and career criminals are not appropriately punished and held accountable. 
Kathy Cady, a former Los Angeles prosecutor, stated, quote, other prosecutors have been telling guests on since day one that his policies are foolhardy and will result in people being harmed, communities being harmed, public safety being impacted, and he doesn't care. Jonathan Hadami, a deputy Los Angeles County DA and supporter of the Gasson recall movement, has stated that Gasson has created an environment with, quote, no accountability and no public safety. It says when Gasson wouldn't let his attorneys attend parole hearings, Villanueva offered to send personnel with the sheriff's department to support the victims instead. Did you guys hear that? So one of the news stories actually that I saw when I was researching for this and just looking at what's going on in California, turns out Gasson is trying to remove, first of all, the the team of people that reach out to families and victims, uh, victims and their families to let them know, hey, somebody that hurt you, the person that went to jail for what they did to you, they're about to be released or they're about to go on parole, all these things. He's actually removing that and his justification was that it's actually more supportive of the victims because it doesn't remind them of what happened, that it can re-traumatize them to have to get a call that the person that went to jail because of what they did to the victim is about to be released. That was his ridiculous justification of that. So that was the most recent update of Gasson. I forgot to print that one out. But it's just a good example of, it's it's almost gaslighting in a way and trying to manipulate the victims into being like, oh no, you'll actually benefit from not knowing that this guy's out and about. Imagine that, imagine that. Um, so the sheriff's department, it says that the sheriff's department offered to send support personnel to help the victims because the DA wouldn't. It's insane, but it's also good. You got to step up and fill those gaps. That's what true leadership is. So it says it's now up. This is now this is where things get political. It's now up to Logan. Remember Logan? He's the uh, the guy that I told you about earlier. What's his title? Oh, County Registrar Recorder. That's his title. Dean Logan. He's controversial registrar recorder. It says it's now up to him to certify the signatures, but many are worried about this ability of his to be able to be fair and impartial. According to his biography, Logan is an active participant in the Future of California Elections Collaborative, which is an association with the James Irvine Foundation, which carries out charitable activities that cross over with some of liberal billionaire George Soros's work. There's no evidence at this point, at least, that Logan has any ties to Soros or any of his affiliates. If such evidence surfaces, then Logan could have to rescue himself since Soros was a major contributor to Gasson's election. So yes, if I haven't said that, Soros put Gasson in charge of LA and many other DAs in charge of other big areas in the country that are blue, and all of them are wreaking havoc on the cities and the crime that they're incentivizing, wreaking havoc on the country. I believe it's intentional. Did I have to say that out loud? I figured you guys would get it, but I'm like, wait, maybe I should make it clear. I believe this is all intentional. The only way that we can end it is to get these insane people out of office and then make sure it doesn't happen again. And so that's the whole point of these recalls. So it says, even if there's no Soros connection, there are other reasons to question Logan's ability to conduct the recount in a fair and impartial manner. He served, this is fascinating, he served as the director of elections for King County in Seattle during the contested race for governor of Washington in 2004, which pitted Democrat Christine Gregoire against Republican Dino Rossi. 
Rossi was up by 261 votes when all the votes were counted. But then, on the third recount, Logan found a few hundred votes to put Gregoire over the top and into the governorship. Naturally, there were lawsuits, and eventually a judge ruled in favor of Gregoire. But during the process, it turned out that hundreds of illegal felons' votes were counted, among other irregularities. Logan resigned in disgrace in 2006 and then headed south to Los Angeles. It seems the rogue prosecutor social experiment is starting to unravel across the country. And so this is a positive thing, you guys. We are now tracking this Logan guy who counted illegal felon votes up in Seattle. Now he's down in L.A. and is going to be potentially counting and watching over the needed signatures and the recall process for this Soros-funded district attorney guy who is destroying L.A. This is going to be something that we all have to watch. But we... The people of San Francisco recalled their crazy Soros-funded district attorney. The people of L.A. just got the needed number of signatures to do the same. And now we're seeing that people are keeping their eyes open. And this is where things are positive. This is where we can keep positive and move forward with action. Good on everybody that's a part of this movement. Wherever these district attorneys are bringing chaos. It says, this is a good way to end the show. It says, Bowden was replaced in San Francisco by Brooke Jenkins, a former deputy district attorney in his office who left in protest over his rogue policies. In her powerful, inspiring acceptance speech, Jenkins said, quote, the paramount mission of the district attorney's office is to promote public safety. I will restore accountability and consequences to our criminal justice system here in San Francisco. Violent and repeat offenders will no longer be allowed to victimize our city without consequence. Nice. You guys, this is how it's done at a community level. This is a system in our country of checks and balances. We are a decentralized federalist republic. The people have the power. Local leaders have power. Local law enforcement has power. There's state law enforcement. There's state level leadership. And then there are checks and balances throughout the federal government. And then on top of that, the federal government checks us. We check them. It is a beautiful system decentralized and it's really up to us in our own communities to get it in shape to get each one in shape and protect them from things like da's that are funded by evil leftist billionaires with that being said thank you guys so much for listening i appreciate it if you still haven't gotten a we the people key tag i forgot to warn you guys at the beginning of the episode i'm pretty sure they are already sold out again after round two so i'm gonna order round three i'll keep you updated if you want one still thank you guys so much for supporting i really appreciate it kenny and i at golden age supply he's the leather Leather guy, he makes beautiful products, and now they're sold at zeggersfreedomflags.shop. Um, but if you look up Kenny, Golden Age Supply, and then if you look up my shop, zeggersfreedomflags.shop, you can get those leather products, and then you can also get some Zeggers Freedom Flags. Thank you guys so much. I really appreciate it, and I will talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.